Welcome to the Life on Word podcast. I'm the host, Bailey Brown. Through this podcast, I hope you fall more in love with God's Word as it is properly understood. If you want to dig deeper into Scripture and see the big picture of God's story, you are in the right place. In these episodes, I want you to see how deep and wide Scripture is and what a joy it is to study God's Word. Life on Word exists to encourage you to build all of your life on the Word of God because it is the only worthy foundation. For more resources relating to studying the Bible, theology, and discipleship, check out baileylbrown.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Life on Word. In this episode, we are studying Matthew chapter 9. Looking back to the last few episodes, we recently made our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, where he authoritatively teaches and instructs disciples to live as members of the kingdom. Then, in chapter 8, Jesus does many miraculous works, showing that his authority goes beyond his teaching and extends also to his works. Today, in chapter 9, Jesus continues to perform miracles. He calls Matthew the tax collector to follow him as a disciple, and he sets the scene for chapter 10 where he will instruct his disciples before sending them out on their missions. With that, we'll get started, and as always, I'll read the passage and then we will break it down. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, 
a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went all through that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Remember in the last episode that the chapter ended with Jesus being asked to leave the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee after he exercised the demons and sent them into a herd of pigs. Chapter 9 picks up with Jesus arriving back in Capernaum, probably going back to Peter's home. A group of men brought a paralytic to Jesus to see if he could heal him. Surprisingly, Jesus responds by telling the man that his sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes hear this and accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he is claiming that he can forgive sins, which is an action only God can do. This is the first explicit opposition that Jesus faces that Matthew records. The scribes do not understand that God has sent Jesus into the world with all authority. Instead, they see Jesus as a threat for many reasons. Jesus applied the Old Testament differently and more authoritatively than they did. Jesus had a different understanding of how God is working. Jesus is a threat to their popularity and national security, and even a threat to their personal security, as Jesus calls them out for a kind of righteousness that is only a mask for their sinful insides. Jesus responds to his critics by asking whether it is easier to heal a person or to say their sins are forgiven. 
He then tells the paralytic to get up and walk home so that the teachers of the law will see that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. A couple of things here. Often when we think of the word authority, we think of people in power that abuse their status. Maybe we think of those who use their power for their own benefit or to harm others. But here we see that Jesus shows he has real authority to do what only God can do. And what is that? He takes away sins. Jesus' authority has nothing to do with violence or self-importance or self-gain and everything to do with a power of freedom and love. Second, by calling himself the Son of Man, we see one more piece of the puzzle of Jesus' identity. He is the Son of Man that didn't come just to deal with earthly authorities, but rather, he came to reckon with evil itself, a much deeper oppression than earthly powers, and cleanse people of their sins. In the next section, we find Jesus calling a tax collector to be his disciple. Jesus is acting so unexpectedly that the opposition to who he is and what he is doing is increasing. Jesus calls unexpected people to follow him, and the religious leaders get upset. Jesus heals surprising types of people, and the religious leaders say he is of Satan. But this doesn't deter Jesus. He continues to have compassion on the people of Israel. Before getting into the specifics of this section, think about the interesting placement of it. Keep in mind, as we talked about in the introduction episode, that Matthew's gospel is not always chronological, but is often organized around certain themes. So, how interesting it is that Matthew, the author of this gospel and the character in this account, has placed this story in the midst of two chapters packed full of Jesus doing miraculous works. Matthew must see what Jesus did for him as a miracle in itself. To understand the depth of this story, you need to know about tax collectors in this context. Tax collectors were those who collected tax money for the Roman authorities. Whatever they collected on top of what was due to the Romans was theirs to keep. Not surprisingly, the tax collectors were often despised by their own people and viewed as traitors. Yet Jesus comes along beside Matthew's tax booth and simply says, follow me. Some scholars say that Matthew and Jesus had a prior history, so Matthew was already familiar with Jesus and his ministry. While we can't know for certain that this is the case, we do see that Matthew turns a complete 180 in his life. Jesus then does something very surprising by sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners as Matthew records. Now, table fellowship in the ancient world culture was a big thing. There were boundaries and rules for the kinds of people you shared a meal with. Yet, Jesus looks past these cultural norms by sitting down to eat with those who were deemed unclean sinners. Jesus begins getting questioned for this decision, and his simple answer each time is basically, because God is doing something different now. The first question comes from the Pharisees, asking why Jesus would eat with such people. Jesus responds by equating himself with the doctor who came to heal the sick. It was the sinners that Jesus came to save in the first place. And this includes the Pharisees. They were just too blind to see their own sinfulness before God. What they didn't understand was that sin is anything that opposes God's will. They had reduced sin down to violating the law according to how they interpreted it. The next question comes from a disciple of John the Baptist. 
he asked why Jesus and his disciples do not fast. John's disciples were regularly fasting as a sign of repentance and spiritual discipline. So while the other movements were waiting on God to act, Jesus knew that God was already doing something new through him and that it was not the time for fasting. In response to the disciple, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Interestingly, there are two passages in the Old Testament that name Yahweh as the bridegroom. So this seems to be an implicit claim to Jesus' identity. Rather than fasting, it is time to rejoice because God is doing a new thing through the person of Jesus. He then goes on to give two metaphors to show that it is impossible to combine the new thing God is doing with the old way the people are doing things. He's not saying that the old religious establishment is bad, but rather that he has come to fulfill it and the same old practices they were doing do not fit into this new movement by God. He talks about using a new patch on an old garment and putting new wine in old wineskins. In each of these metaphors, using the new with the old causes the old to become even more damaged. The main point is that because Jesus is here, a new way of doing things is being inaugurated, and it is for the good of the people to jump on board and see what Jesus and his ways are all about. The scene then changes as a ruler finds Jesus and frantically explains that his daughter has just died. He asks Jesus to come and heal her. While Jesus has not yet raised anyone from the dead, this had occurred in the Old Testament by certain men of God, so the synagogue leader has faith that Jesus will be able to bring his daughter back. Yet, on his way to the man's home, Jesus is interrupted by a woman that had been bleeding for 12 years. She has enough trust in Jesus that though she is unclean and is meant to stay away from people, she goes out into the crowd seeking Jesus, having faith that he can make her clean and well. Matthew records that Jesus tells the woman, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Rather than Jesus becoming unclean because he is touched by an unclean woman, he makes the woman clean. He tells her that it is her faith that has made the difference. It is not some magic garment he is wearing that healed her, but rather it is Jesus' reliance on the power of God to heal when a person has faith. Jesus then goes on to the synagogue leader's home to raise the little girl back from the dead. Now in Mark and Luke's account of this scene, the story is told in much greater detail. Here, Matthew merely records that Jesus sends the mourners out of the house, telling them that the girl is asleep. They laugh at him, yet when he touches her hand, she rises. So in this little scene, we see Jesus touch two people that were considered unclean, people that were meant to not ever be touched. Yet Jesus comes and makes both of them clean and well. In the next section, we find Jesus healing two blind men who seem to understand his true identity. They call out to him, "'Have mercy on us, son of David.'" This is the first time Jesus is called by this title in the gospel. There are a few passages in Isaiah that point to a messianic deliverer being able to heal the blind. So here we see that these two men have connected Jesus with the Old Testament prophecies of the son of David, the Messiah, who has the power to make the blind see. Then in the final miracle of this chapter, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who is unable to speak. As usual, when the crowds see him perform these miracles, they are amazed. 
They've never seen anything like this in Israel. But the Pharisees, they react by insisting that Jesus cannot have the powers of God and must be from Satan. This was the only explanation they could come up with apart from recognizing who Jesus truly was. The chapter comes to a close with Matthew recording the same expression that he did at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, found in chapter 4, verse 23. These verses form a bookend effect that sets off the material in between. What we find between these two statements is that Jesus is the authoritative Messiah through his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and through his authoritative ability to perform miracles. Matthew then states that Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion for them, seeing that they were like sheep without a shepherd. This metaphor of sheep and their shepherds is richly woven throughout the Old Testament. Think of the sacrificial lamb of the Day of the Atonement and the Passover. Think about Isaiah talking about God being the shepherd of Israel. Think of the 23rd Psalm talking about dependence on God as the good shepherd. Finally, think about Ezekiel prophesying that the Davidic Messiah would come and establish an everlasting covenant with Israel and would be their shepherd. Now, going back to the time of Jesus, see how the current shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, are not shepherding the people well. They are not caring for the spiritual needs of the people and pointing them to God. For this reason, Jesus, as the true shepherd, has compassion on his people. Then he gives one more metaphor to his disciples. There is a great harvest and few harvesters. The disciples should pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. This is Jesus inviting his disciples into the ministry. They will soon be sent out into their own missions, acting as representatives of Jesus' name and message. It is uncommon for Jesus to tell his followers how to pray, other than in the Lord's Prayer. Yet here he does. He sees that the Israelites are like sheep without a shepherd, and like wheat in need of harvest. They are people eager for God's kingdom, yet they don't understand that God is already on the move through Jesus. We've reached the end of Matthew chapter 9, so we will now wrap up and look at a couple of key takeaways and applications. We find in this chapter many events where Jesus does the miraculous to heal a person. But going deeper than that, we see this undertone throughout the chapter that show the feelings that Jesus has toward these people. It was feelings of love and compassion. The chapter is packed full of stories where Jesus sees a person that the rest of the world says is dirty, a sinner, unclean, unworthy of interaction, and he reaches out to them to make them well. He sees the people of Israel are hurting and are in need of a shepherd. On the flip side, we see the religious leaders have very different thoughts. How dare Jesus associate with the sinners of the community? How dare Jesus say that he has the authority to forgive sins? How dare he touch the uncleanness of a bleeding woman and a dead child? This attitude just reeks from a lack of compassion toward their own people. As followers of Christ, we are called to partner with the Holy Spirit in us and strive to live like Jesus did. Consider which of these you share similarities with. Are you more like Jesus, having compassion on those who do not believe, who are stuck in sin, or who are hurting? Or do you look down upon them from a place of superiority, waiting on them to get their act together before you go and are willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus to them? 
Throughout history, the church has at times been a beacon to the lost world, following in the footsteps of Jesus and caring for the needs of those hurting. We give Christianity a bad reputation when we act as the Pharisees did. I challenge you to allow yourself to feel deeply for the lost world and minister to their needs holistically. The church has an opportunity now and in every generation to show Christ's love in tangible ways that leave a lost person wondering who this Jesus is and how they can know him more. Today we looked at Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus continues to perform miraculous healings including raising a child from the dead. While much of the crowd was amazed at Jesus' ability to do such things, the Pharisees conclude that Jesus must be in partnership with the devil. The chapter ends with Jesus telling his disciples that the field is ripe for harvest and to ask God to send harvesters. This is a perfect transition to chapter 10, where Jesus instructs the disciples and prepares them to go out carrying his name and message. Tune in to our next episode as we discover how Jesus equips his disciples for the mission field. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Check out baileylbrown.com for show notes and Life on Word resources.